This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 280. And the quote of the day is, never make permanent decisions on temporary feelings. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers, music industry professionals, and thought leaders. Inspiration, education, and motivation for drumming, and beyond, and beyond, and beyond. Hello, hello, hello. What's going on? How are you today? I hope you're doing well. This is Nick Ruffini and you're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 280. 280 of these bad boys. And if you haven't heard them all, you can find them on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, drummersresource.com, all that fun stuff. And if you like doing the review and rating sort of thing, you can do that on iTunes. Just leave a rating or review. I would appreciate that. And I love you for it. Well, I mean, I love you either way, but uh, we'd really appreciate it if you do that. That helps the podcast show up higher in the ratings and lets more people learn about the podcast as well. So if you could do that, I would appreciate it. Now, this interview is a little bit different. This conversation is a little bit different because it is definitely not an interview. It is a full-on candid conversation that I have with my buddy James Wormworth and Mike Merritt. So James and Mike are the drummer and bass player for the basic cable band which is the band that you see on conan o'brien and the cool thing about well there's a couple cool things one these guys have been playing together for 23 years so have been playing together well before they were ever on the conan o'brien show there's a really interesting story about how the band got the gig and what happened with James uh, after the band got the gig and so we'll definitely talk about that and also I'm literally sitting at Conan O'Brien's desk when I'm doing this interview. They're sitting in the couch and I'm sitting in Conan O'Brien's desk. I'll show you. I'll put some pictures in the show notes at drummersresource.com forward slash session 280 that you can check out. And again, this is a conversation and there's parts of the conversation where we actually get really quiet because Andy Richter was shooting a thing right behind us and they came out and just asked us if we could be a little quieter because our voices were showing up uh, in the segment. You could hear our voices in the segment when they were recording. So uh, um, Justin did a great job making this sound amazing. But again, it's a really just candid, loose conversation for you to be a fly on the wall to check it out. So I hope that you enjoy it. And let's get into it with James the Worm Wormworth and Mike Merritt. This is an interesting place to do this. One, because I'm literally sitting at Conan O'Brien's desk. Yeah. Two, I've never had two people on the podcast at the same time. So I like this. So you'll tell me all the things that you think are cool about yourself. Uh, And then uh, I think, and then Mikey can set me, set me straight. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not going to say anything inappropriate, except that people have had sex on there it's out there and uh, uh which one of you oh i, I don't want to point fingers I, I so i'll just nothing. point one finger i know nothing there, there's a camera right here that we can reference there's cam- there are cameras there everywhere. there's like a bunch of really expensive cameras all over the- there's a couple of spotlights up that way yeah and there's a recording booth up there so they're getting all their stuff and there's all cameras the- you can't see too mm-hmm. i know uh-huh yeah like so, that one i'm not pointing to but yeah <laughs> like the one i'm not pointing to yeah. so the the cool story is about how you guys ended up here because it didn't start in LA. Um, you know, you're from Philly. I'm from Philly. 
You're from New York, James. Yeah. Um, so talk to me a little bit about the the story of how you got there. You've told me this before. This is actually so this 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 interview, or if you want to call it that, this conversation, it's informal chat. This is the third time we've attempted this. We did it once? What was the first time? First time was with with the restaurant with Chef. Oh yeah. And we ended up just eating for about four and a half this hours guy, and you, loving you, it. You sodium pentothal with this guy. <laughs> yeah. Is that really like a, the truth? Is that a gotta, condiment? Uh, yes, as a matter of fact. Yeah, have some. <laughs> Pour some on, baby. And then the second time was at the, the Riv. The second time we did it at the Riv on yeah. September 11th. And we were actually talking about like you uh, being in New York yep. on September 11th. It was crazy. And the recorder crapped out. So yeah. every eight seconds, it started, started a new, new track. But it, but it dropped off about about a second. <laughs> so so the, he can do an impression of that. <laughs> I mean, it, when you're like this and... Break up. That's exactly. Michael Meredith. That was it. So this is so now. So this is the third time. It is a charm. And it is. And hello, every. That means it's going to be a success. <laughs> I like it. Third time's a charm. Thanks, Ed. And and it's different for me now because you and I have been becoming increasingly better friends over yeah. the years. So before, you know, well, even, you're a better friend. I'm a lousy friend. You're a bad texter, I'll tell you that. You don't like texting, do you? are not big on... Why? What do, what's wrong with my texting? <laughs> it's the, it's all single or double syllable responses? You're very, uh, you're very curt. I'm concise. It's just a fact. She's like sending faxes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you don't have to pay by the word, you know. How do you know that? I might have gotten one of his plans. All right, Mr. fair enough. Frugal. Um, so, let's talk about how this, how you guys got together, because I'm interested, one, how you guys ended up playing together and then i love the story of what i'll let you tell the story but of like how the whole gig came about where it was like it sort of came about for everyone but not you well we met quite some time ago uh, working together he was working with a, a blues man blues artist johnny copeland incredible texas blues yeah man. incredible really, texas blues man who happened to work out of new york city an american original he and you were still in philly, in philly no, i was in new york then had oh you were in new york, york. Okay. i was in new york okay who were you working with before that God, did, I don't did, did we? We didn't have any any musical commonality before. No, Johnny, we met on Johnny's gig. Yeah, early time in the last Pleistocene age. Back but yeah, you know, we were sort of around each other so all when, the time. Like, like what, year? what year? What year? We early eighties. Well, early eighties. Yeah, I was like nine. And <laughs> I was going to say, what were you? What were you about thirty? <laughs> yeah. Daddy, can I? Can you bring my pair of drums? Well, didn't you get some? You got hired for one of your dad's gigs. Yeah. Well, we have. We'll get to that. Oh, good gracious. Uh, but yeah, we were sort of traveling in concentric universes, kind of. Wait, no, what's the one? Like, like yeah. you said, elliptic, elliptical universes. Elliptical, yeah. yeah. We were both on an elliptical. And uh, and so I had heard about him a bunch. I'm sure he had heard about me a ton. Oh, I knew all about some a couple <laughs> things about you. And like Bleecker Street, you know, right. a big scene down there where a lot, a lot of different uh, genres collided and, and met. And, you know, just a tremendous scene of bands like uh, you're the blues traveler yeah uh, spin doctors joan osborne the, they were all just like they were, they were all, all just playing down there every week man. but what's interesting about johnny copeland was that there was a lot of musicians in new york so he was a texas blues man that worked out lived in new york city right worked out in new york city but he traveled but he traveled it was his base but a lot of musicians who played in his band were new york guys who were in new york Right. Guys who were from Philly, who had Boston, come to New York, who come to New York, yeah. 
were guys who were already in New York, like and he didn't, James. And he didn't really work in New York that no, much. not a whole lot. His, his, most of his work was outside of the city, traveling to Europe, yeah. across the country, right, right, right. sort of working the blues circuit, you know. Around, the, the, yeah, around the U.S. Yeah. Because I think when I joined his band, I did pretty much, pretty much close to 48 states. And wow. then we started going to Europe, and then we started going to Africa. It was, I, that was like my first. So how, how'd you get the um, I'm always interested to hear that because I know that a lot of times the listeners are like, oh, well, or if anybody talks about anything, they, they never connect the dots. So they're like, oh, I ended up, I started playing. So I got the gig with this person or I got the gig with that person. It's yeah. like, well, how did the, how did that come about? How did that gig happen? Well, it was very wholesome, a very wholesome upbringing. My dad's a drummer also. And, um, Who I've had on the podcast. Yeah. yeah. My venerable, illustrious pop. And, uh, Johnny Copeland's manager, uh, lived in the same building on West 55th Street as my dad's pot dealer. <laughs> and so it, it, my dad's pot dealer was also Johnny Copeland's manager's pot dealer. Small world. Yeah, unless you got to smoke it. <laughs> oh, I, th- I thought you said he managed his pot dealer. I was like, no, no. He, I said he, the, pot, I was no, like, he the managed, pot dealer had a manager? It's nowadays they do. It's, nowadays. It's, yeah, they have agents. Yeah. It's turning into a podcast. Yeah. Uh, so, so in the same building, John, Johnny Copeland's manager, uh, my dad's pot dealer, and those worlds collided. And I guess maybe they asked my dad to um, be. Uh, are those my glasses? Okay. So no yelling out. Don't. Scream. No yelling out. Hooray! Okay. Oh, I think that that's what Bell was doing here. So um, uh, they, uh, they, they, they. I, I think. His manager asked my dad if he wanted to do the gig, and my dad was already working. The gig didn't really pay that much to start with. Right. You know, the blues man just traveling around the country with a with a van and a trailer, and you know, pulling into town, unloading the trailer, setting up, and finishing the gig, going to the Motel Six, and hit it again the next day. My dad wasn't up for that, so he put uh, them on to me, and so I started doing it. And he was already on the gig. And I just, you know, I got a, a slew of music from them, started learning it, and then we started uh, going out there and hitting the road. And did you did you get the gig to a pot dealer too? No. no. He, he wasn't your pot dealer too? No. I didn't know in that building at that time. <laughs> what happened? Yeah. Wow. No. Um, one of the guys... Should we not be doing this? Well, I don't know. Oh, we're cool. We're cool. Yeah, we're not that loud. That's really far away. Okay. We just have to shout. Yeah, we can't be emotive. uh, So, uh, yeah, I was in New York and for a short time. I'd only been there for a few months. And um, somebody um, who was working with Johnny, his piano player slash road manager, whatever, was looking for another bass player because Johnny had his his first record on Rounder was coming out, Copeland Special. And he needed a bass player to start working to promote the record. And he had gotten my number from another bass player in New York City. Uh, and I got this call from this guy. I said, oh, we got the, this guy, Johnny Copeland, Texas, Reno. You know, he's got a new record coming out, looking for a bass player. And I said, well, sure, yeah, I'll do it. And then I connected with them and started working with him. And several months later, this guy winds up playing drums. Nice. And that's how we sort of connected. Nice. And then he's been following me around but since then. To, 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 to touch on your point, though, it's like people listening, they think, well, how you hear the stories about how people get gigs, and it's like you don't really want to connect the dots. But it's like it was just a simple matter of somebody, you know, 
having my number and right. turning on somebody else. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, like, you know, it's, it's that whole network right. thing mm-hmm. where, yeah. you know, you never know how, where, when you give out your number to somebody, where that's going to lead. Right. Because they might, I, 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 you know, I knew this bass player, and he was a jazz guy, a guy named Dennis Irwin, who was playing with Art Blakey at that oh, yeah. time. And um, we connected because I saw him on a gig with Art, and then we exchanged numbers, and then this guy got my number from him. Right. And, you know, so that's kind of how those kind of things go about. It's, it's yeah, I actually had to network with my dad too because he would yeah. just get me on the gig. It's so. and it's all these like little, it's like a series of events, but it's this little thing here. There's one thing here. There's and like you said, you've no idea where it's going to go. You can play one gig with someone, and five years later, you know, oh, you gave me your number, and or or you end up connecting with them again. And they're like, oh man, I'm glad I, I lost your car or you know whatever. Right. I, want, I need you for this gig, or I need you for this thing, or whatever. Exactly. Let's take that same point. We'll right. jump up a few years, and um, I was uh, in New York, and and um, I knew this piano player who was doing a gig at the Lone Star Roadhouse. I know I was at the old Lone Star. And when I did the gig, Jimmy Vivino was on the gig as a guitar player, and that's where I first met Jimmy. Hmm. And he used to come down, even before I knew him, he would come down to the Lone Star and watch Johnny Copeland, actually, when we were right. playing there. We didn't know him then. Right. So then I wound up working a gig with him at the Lone Star, and it was like, okay, cool, you know, this cat's great, it's got a great thing, you know, and then, you know, same thing. A couple years later, uh, I was working with this piano player, Johnny Johnson. Johnny Johnson. Great Johnny Johnson from St. Louis, Chuck yeah. Berry's piano player, and he was getting some attention because of Hail Hail Rock and Roll had just been out, mm-hmm. and the Chuck Berry thing, and all of a Keith sudden, everybody's finding stuff, out. Yeah. Keith Richards is singing Johnny's the guys, so all of a sudden, Johnny was getting gigs under his own name. And I knew his booking agent, who was the same guy who was booking Johnny Copeland. Mm-hmm. So then I would put together bands when Johnny would come to New York. Johnny mm-hmm. Johnson would come to New York and do these gigs. So I came to be in that position of putting together the musicians. So I called this guy. And then I remember Jimmy from the Lone Star gig. Right, and I said, right. Jimmy, oh, he'll be perfect. He knows all right. this stuff. He knows all this Chuck stuff, man. So then we started becoming his backup band. Oh. And so so you're the, you're, you were sort of like the catalyst. It's kind of like that. And we started playing with Johnny Johnson. And then we started traveling with him and traveled oh, yeah. all over the states and Europe and yeah. out here in Los Angeles. All the festivals. We did a lot of festivals yeah. in Montreux. We, did, we had some great times with Johnny. And then we became, and then Jimmy... You know, the three of us became Jimmy Vivino and the Black Italians. Right. Right. So Jimmy had been doing a lot of his own gigs. He had, he's worked with just a slew of people. Yeah, pretty strong rep at that yeah. time. So he's doing work. like working with Donald Fagan and New York Rock and Soul Review, Phoebe Snow, uh, just uh, Al Cooper, a whole bunch of people. So he had his whole thing going, but the Johnny Johnson thing was so attracted to him that he sort of, you know, didn't put that by the... Uh, Put that away, but he, you know, added this as a main part of his his uh, thing musically, and so we just sort of became a unit. And then it, we, it, it, his world is very large, so it started expanding ours, and we got a residency at the uh, at Downtime on Thirtieth Street, and we just sort of the band just kept growing. So it was us three, and then you know just a bunch of people would come through. Uh, we would be the trio for other blues artists like mm-hmm. Sun Seals. Mm-hmm. And, oh, nice. So we started doing this downtime gig. Yeah. So then we, everybody would be inviting down their friends to come and sit in. And Jimmy would invite people to come and sit in. And next thing you know, there's Donald Fagan sitting in. Next nice. thing you know, there's Al Cooper sitting in. Right. Next thing you know, Johnny Rivers is sitting in. Next thing you know, all these people are coming in. Everybody. And one time, Max Weinberg came and sat in. Uh, yeah. Yeah. 
So then that part that leads into that what we're talking about beginning. now. Yeah. So then rewind for one second. So when you guys were playing as the Black Italians, were you playing covers? Were you playing originals? What were you guys doing? Mostly blues, Mostly blues, blues, blues and, and blues soul. covers. Yeah. Yeah. Because I was wondering, was there like, were you guys looking to get signed, or were you looking to write original no, material, or were you just, just like enjoying just a place to go and play just with our friends? Right. So that's awesome. Yeah. Just to like get right. it out of us. And it wasn't just all blues either. We'd play like you know covers, but play our own take on them. Right. You know, we played Dylan. We you know we, so it was a lot of there was a lot of stones, yeah. blues. You know, so we play everything, everything, but the, with our own approach, kind right. of. Right. You know. So then Max comes in. Max White comes in. Max White and in. Jimmy had worked together right. with a band called Killer Joe. Mm -hmm. When Max was not working with Bruce, they had the project. They worked together, so he would invite Max down to come and sit in. So were the horn guys in that band? And Killer uh, Joe? Yes, the horn section guys were in that band, Killer Joe, and that's how I met Max because I did a Killer Joe gig with them. It's like a year before the Conan show happened, right? Where I got called in to do some gigs with Killer Joe in New York City, and that's where I met Max. That's where I played with him. Uh, gig. I got you. So yeah. that was that connection started. That was about maybe a year before the Conan show started. Mm -hmm. So what was Conan, I mean before that what was Conan doing before the Conan show was he writing, writing SNL. SNL. SNL SNL before that The Simpsons yeah. so I knew he was with the, so I didn't know what he was doing like right before he got the show so what was he it was, the late, late show or something or, uh, uh, he was working for Saturday Night Live SNL yeah no, I mean, but then when he got then, the show, then when we got the show, it was, it late, was night. late night with Conan O'Brien. Right. He took over with Letterman, went to CBS. Uh, CBS. Right, and right. Uh, it was kind of like I guess he was Lawrence Pick, right? Well, yeah, the NBC went to Lauren Michaels and they said, "Well, we don't have Letterman at twelve thirty. We need right. somebody to help us out at twelve thirty. And you're the wizard of, of, of you've got you this know, great Saturday Night Live after eleven thirty. So you're they, the wizard. Lauren said, "This guy Conan, he's your guy. Yeah, he's your guy." And the network wasn't sure because see what Conan wasn't a known. He wasn't tested. He wasn't an on-screen. Well, that's that. the that's what I was wondering, like because he, you know, they're pulling somebody out of the writing room. He was and, exactly and thinking they can just put him on. Well, Lauren had Lauren had faith in him, and their track record with Lauren was very good. It right. still is, man. Right. Still is right. I mean, we had Will Ferrell on the show today, and that's he's out of the Lauren stable. Totally. Yeah, you know. So, so is Amy Poehler, his co-star. Yeah. Mm -hmm. movie they were pushing today and it's just like you know he knows what he's doing he's right. got to figure it out so so they you get wind that they're putting a band together for the Conan show yeah so what happens how what happens because he's like um, we were doing the downtime gig yeah. every Thursday night and then while that's all going on and uh, uh, I get a call from Jimmy once and it's in the summer of 93 and he says uh you know, I got a call from Max Weinberg, and he's putting together some guys to audition for this new late night thing at NBC. And uh, can you be at so and so restaurant like tomorrow? Mm -hmm. and I said, oh, Yeah, you know, okay, fine. So I get there, I show up there, and there's the Baba, and there's Pender, and there's Jerry, and there's like all the guys that are kind of like there, pretty right. much. And um, we put something together, put a presentation together for uh, for Conan and the brain trusted the show, Robert Smigel and Jeff Ross, and so on. We, we, we did something at a rehearsal studio in New York, and you know, a week later they said, "Okay, you guys are the band. You guys are yeah, going to be the band great. for the show." Right. So we got the gig, and then we go back to our regular Thursday night gig yeah, at downtime. downtime. And these guys, Jimmy and Mike, you know, this downtime gig was so much fun. Some of the best fun I've ever had doing music with my bros. And you know, we would have contraband there, like Cuban cigars, and we just, you know, sort of ran the place and uh, just. 
do whatever we want. So back we, in the days when you got a gig in the club, you had the whole club for the whole night. It was right. like six bands yeah, in one yeah. night. Right. They booked us in there on Thursday and we had the whole night. Mm -hmm. We played from like nine until whenever we wanted to stop. Right. So I think one night we're standing out on a break, you know, we play long sets and then take long breaks and then come back and play a longer set and just go till the morning, you know? Mm -hmm. And we're standing out there having cognacs and probably smoking some Cuban cigars and it's just talking and, just, and other things, of course. And I'm just leaning against the car, we're just shooting the shit. And then uh, Jimmy or Mike just says, hey, so you, you know that uh, Letterman's leaving uh, NBC to get his own show at 1130, his new show. I said, yeah, I've been hearing about that. And he said, well, so they got this new guy, Conan, that's going to take over the late night show. He says, yeah, I've been reading about that. He says, well, man, we got the gig. And because we were such a band and, you know, I just, it didn't occur to me. We were in the midst of being us. That I said, my first reaction was, we did? And there was sort of a tug at the collar, just saying, oh, oh, yes. Uh, no, well, we got the gig. Uh, Max is going to be the band leader. I said, Max Weinberg? He said, yeah. I said, oh, well, cool, man. That's great. Right. It's going to be a great gig, man. It's going to be really fantastic. Um, and we're still doing this, right? So yeah, of course. You know, they went on, and it's it's been great ever since then. But there's two ways you can react in that situation. I did both. Yeah, I was just like, yeah, man, all right, that's great. And then for about two weeks, I was like, God, were you pissed off at them or just no, just upset at them, man? No, they, they they you know they got a great gig. It's going to be tremendous exposure for my brothers, you know. It's just, and by that time, the other guys, uh, Pender, La Bamba, Jerry, like we did a Vivino Brothers band, and they would augment that band, and you know, we all had become friends mm -hmm. and, and collaborators by then. So I was happy for them, man. And you how did you guys? Well, happy for ourselves. We knew it was, we, we were great, we were elated, but we knew it was Max's gig. He was the band leader, not just the drummer, but he was the band leader yeah. right. and the music director. So right. we were like, what do? Yeah. Yeah. No, no, it's, I don't, I don't blame you. So we, we ran with it. Yeah. And you know, we still, we were still a band. Whenever they could, we'd go out and play. Yeah. You know, uh, we didn't do as much traveling then, but we still, you know, we still had plenty of fun. We did plenty of work, man. Coney would come to gigs and hang out. Uh, he would come out to gigs that we were doing ourselves in right. the city. Like, like Chicago, Chicago Blues. Blues. Like Conan would come out and just hang out with us. Oh, yeah. 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 He right. plays guitar and he plays drums. And yeah. so he would come and just like really enjoy the music and get into his new band and stuff. And then it went like that for me. Six years later, um, uh, Springsteen announced he was going back out with the E Street Band. So uh, having been the band, I kind of figured that I would be the first call just because it just seemed to make sense because we were still a band at that point. And uh, it, was, it was a little bit of sure, not, a, not exactly that's set the, that it was going to be that kind of situation because I remember hearing some talk about that because Bruce had taken a long hiatus and actually had fired the E Street Band back in the 90s. Okay. Uh -huh. Took off. It did some did a couple of records with different oh, musicians, yeah. right. you know, Human Touch and all that stuff he did. Right. And then we got the E Street guys back together again. So then Max was like, yeah, he's going to go out with Bruce. And then there was there was talk. I remember there was talk, chatter. I hear things, you know. Things. About, I hear the things. You know, he was thinking about, well, who was going to sub for him? He was thinking about maybe I'll just have a 
star drummer of every week come in like week one week we have Purdy come in uh, one week Gad one week this one one week okay. that one but one that was talk, that was that was talked about for a little bit mm-hmm. but um, then it was decided which is actually what they they do on Seth Myers yeah yeah right well, that was what was talked about at first but then uh, I think what was decided on well you needed to get a permanent. A replacement well, so that's good I'm glad One I wasn't person. privy to that yeah well that's kind of what they were talking about in the beginning but then it got talked sort about sort of like a, they got a long term sub somebody who would be right. the sub who yeah. would call the same guy every time right. yeah you know, right. and that's kind of where he comes in yeah right. and uh, it's been going like that ever since then you know and we had the most tremendous fun man and that since then you know we were back we were back together as a band mm-hmm. and we got the opportunity to play every day you know, whereas before we would do a little stint of gigs or we would do our weekly gig. And, yeah, no, we were doing five, five nights a week. Nice. Yeah. How long and were you subbing? It would uh, go sometimes for months, for however long they were on tour. And then there would be times when they'd take a break in the middle of the tour and then go back out. So it could be months at a time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was always very happy when those tours would be announced. You know, I would go back to, and by that time, I had made friends with a lot of people on the show. And right. We'd actually hang out, hang out together outside of the show, and of course with my bros. And um, so, you know, I, they welcomed me into the family mm-hmm. pretty readily and easily, and it was a lot of fun from the beginning. And uh, I would always be happy when the, the Springsteen would announce another tour. And so we went on doing that for almost ten years. Ten I guess. years, yeah. Pretty from much 10 from years. 1990, from 1999 uh, to, to 2009. Yeah. Like on and off. Yeah. Yeah. For 10 years. Because Bruce got really busy during that time. Started mm-hmm. recording again. Which East Street. Street fired now. up. Yeah. He's touring the world again. Right. So they got really busy. So he was around a lot. So then, you know, then then this changed. whole thing of coming out to L.A. started to arrive. Getting the Tonight Show. And uh, from there, that spurred some chatter about adding a permanent new piece, eighth piece to the band. And you know, the, I guess I was the guy. I was the obvious choice. And uh, why did they not want to use Max anymore? Does anybody know? Or is it just well? What happened was we came out here to start the Tonight Show. Bruce had had, had a tour set for the summer of two thousand and nine, and that was the start date of the Tonight Show for us, June of two thousand and nine. Mm-hmm. So at the end of June, Bruce was set to start a summer tour. Right. So they knew this. We were preparing for the show a few months earlier in the spring of two thousand. And I get, they didn't want to and do it with a sub. They wanted, they wanted to be ready for that. So, so they figured, well, we'll add the eighth piece, make Worm the percussionist. Max goes out. Worm sits in the drum chair. Then we add someone local here in L.A. Right. to do the percussion, percussion chair. chair. And then when Max comes back, Worm's back with the percussion. Max back on the drums. Right. So they had to work that out because he was going to be going back and forth with Bruce. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that was sort of like a contingency plan, so yeah. to speak. Sure. You know, keeps things consistent. Yeah, yeah. And... <laughs> And that was, well, our tonight show was short-lived. Yes, For very other reasons. So, That's a long story. So, wait a minute. So, when the Tonight Show came out here, you weren't the full-time drummer then? No, it was still you were the percussion. gig. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I okay. playing percussion. I thought when you guys came out here, you got that gig. No, but, well, it was, a, no, we came out with Max. And uh, then, yeah, we had the whole uh, Tonight Show debacle mishappen I think one of the when you've told me the story before one of the funny things you said is that they said that they would put Conan on at like 1230 or something and he uh, said 1201 1201 he said that's not the Tonight Show it's the tomorrow that's morning tomorrow show. Show. <laughs> he resisted that move yeah because it was like a, they wanted to make everybody happy right. the network didn't want to lose Leno or right. Conan right. and it's it was really a hard, tough was way to make it work a, a tremendous 
miscommunication. It was a lot of, you know, executive mishandling right. sure. the situation. They, so. they played their hand kind of wrong. And as a result, you know, Conan left the network. Yeah. And we started here, TBS. Well, with them, we didn't have a, a, a gig for a while, you know, because we were just yeah, sort of like the floor sort of came out from underneath us. And uh, I remember that last, you know, when we were on the, the when Conan first made the announcement, he gathered everybody in the seats inside, on the stage, everybody that worked on the show, and he let everyone know that we were moving on. We weren't going to do the 12. It was, it was his people of Earth speech. Yeah. when he said that, he didn't want to take the network's offer to do the Tonight Show at twelve oh one because it's not the Tonight Show, right? <laughs> so the Tonight Show with Conan O'Brien, we're we're not we're cut, we're pulling the plug. We won't on be it. doing. We're not going to yeah. be doing that. And then fun. he said, "Don't worry, everyone. We're gonna be okay." And I believed him, and it was you know, of course, I was in shock. I'm sure you were. We didn't really know about how that was going to come about. Being okay, right. yeah. you take his word for it. I mean, you know, this is a lot for the guy to because he's putting his. His uh, reputation and his career on the line and too. Also, we'll half the show is people from New York, and they you know. took their kids out of school, and they sold their big houses, big and move. they, big, yeah. big, you know, big, they moved their families here, move. got houses, put their kids in, in school here. It's just a big change of life, and a lot of people depending on this, you know. And so when he said it's gonna, everybody's gonna be fine. Don't worry, you know. And he, to this day, man, he's solid on that. Right. He took, I mean, he took care of everybody when you guys weren't working, right? He did a lot to uh, keep everybody able to pay their bills. Yeah. yeah. So then that's when the idea of the live tour and then, started coming yeah. out. The live tour was, it was an idea of doing a live tour. Since he was contractually obligated to not be on TV for like eight or nine months. He had to sign an actual contract to not be on TV. He could not be on TV oh, for like eight months. That's why it was called the legally prohibited from being on, on television TV. tour. Yeah, that was, that, was, that was the theme of the tour. Go out and some <laughs> comedy and some music with special guests. Like a live review, man. Right. He, you know, he did everything. They, music, lots of singing. He did big musical numbers. He even dressed up as like the Eddie Murphy from the Raw tour. But he got, <laughs> he, the public was on his side because they oh, saw man. what happened to him. They and were they amazing. Like, so this, the tour sold out instantly when they announced the dates. I, yeah. was, I was here in LA when that whole thing was going on and there was all the people outside picketing oh, yeah. and, yeah. and yeah. all kinds of stuff. Yeah. I mean, they are outside of Universal, not yeah. outside of water. Yeah. And, and it was raining. raining and it was, weekend. it was and, crazy. And our last show, we did Freebird and Will Ferrell, who was on today's He's show, on sang lead on Freebird, on Freebird. The very last show. with his pregnant wife. His pregnant wife, who gave birth that, that night. night. She went and, out, and then we had Tom Papa on the show, a great stand-up comedian tonight, and he told the same story. He said he was here 15 years ago. Today, oh, he was in New York, in New York City, on late night, on late night with Conan, and his wife was pregnant. And he said, he, Tom told Conan, hey, "Yeah, when we were so funny." We were going to go home, and my wife was going to have two weeks, and then go into labor and have the kid. Instead, she went into labor that night. <laughs> yes, so Will Ferrell, Tom Papa, we make women give birth. The only difference with this time is like we're not losing. We didn't lose we the show. We have the show. Right. The show. What, was the, what was the face paint thing? To, or was that just part of the just stick? insane? Well, that was part of the little sketch that he did yeah. because of the birthday party for the kid kind of thing. Right, right. I right. put this thing over this kid, which led to the song that we wind up doing right. later. But yeah. you, did you know that he was going to do that? I, I did not Conan, know he was going to do that. I don't think Conan knew that he was going to do face paint. He always does that. Will Ferrell, when he comes around here, he always does something He takes us far. Yeah. Because he and Conan, they're, they're, they're buds. They yeah. go way back. They, you know, he loves the show. Will's yeah. always been great to us when he comes here. Yeah. So he always goes that, that extra mile. Cool. You know, 
something really outrageously funny. The funny thing is, I was, you know, I was sitting in the stand or sitting in the, in the seats watching, uh-huh. and when I knew that Will was going to be on because you know Warren had told me, and like all these people are like, I wonder who it is. Yeah. And I could hear people like, I wonder if it's this person. I wonder right. if it's this oh, person. Yeah. I wonder. If it's, what's yeah. I didn't say anything. I just, just yeah. Yeah, I'm not going to ruin it for them. But that's a good. That's a good. Uh, surprise guests we do a lot of that because uh, we for various reasons work around people's schedules it could be Conan's it could be Will Ferrell's it could be anybody and uh, we cobble shows which is really kind of cool because we do bits of show to be determined uh, on the same day as we're doing a regular show you know, just yeah. a, a concise episode of Conan. Yeah, so build it and put it all together. And yeah. You sort of stitch it together. So it's a lot of times you're just grabbing people when they're available. Right. Because maybe next Thursday Will's not available to right. come here, so we get him now, put the show together. Put the show together for next Thursday. show for next Thursday night. So what happens, like, on next Thursday? Do those people get sort of shafted on a, on, like, a guest and all that? Or well, no, no, we won't. We won't. We don't work. We'll be... Uh, we'll be an extra day off. We'll be in can. Can. <laughs> yeah. You'll be in the can. In can. <laughs> we'll be sunning on the Riviera. It reminds me of National Lampoon's European Vacation when he says, "Oh, a Coke," and she goes, and he's on a plane. She's like, "Would you like that in the can?" And he looks back to the bathroom, turns back around. He's like, "No, nah, I think I'll take it right here." <laughs> right. All right. So we gotta we gotta finish the the story for the listeners. So you guys, um, you do the legally prohibited tour. Yeah, all that tremendously and successful. While we're starting the tour, very first date of the tour. Eugene, Oregon, first day of the tour. That morning was when the TBS deal was announced. Really? So we hadn't even done the first show. It was the day of the first show. And with Max still? No, no, Max was not in the picture. Max was not on the tour at all. Well, I know that. Max had had some medical issues he was dealing with. Plus, he was he was, he was leaning more towards wanting to be in New Jersey and be with Bruce as opposed to coming right. to the show. And I think the show was in a, well, it's got to be either work kind of a situation. So Right. So, Worm was, was signed up to do the whole so tour. Yeah. They signed the TBS deal. We did the tour. Who's the drummer? Me. Do you, do you have that gig yet? Or, no, or nobody? Or was that yeah, still no, like... Yeah, I'm, 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 you know... Yeah, we're, we're, we've moved on and we're coming in to do this. Okay. You yeah, know? that was decided. And we came in loud and proud yeah. and strong and been going ever since, man. It's been so much fun. Nice. You know, it's Almost. a challenge every day, but we rise to it, man. And, you know, you, you see the audiences here. Mm-hmm. They're loving it. The audience tonight was insane. Yeah. Like, I mean, I've been here. This is, I don't know how many times I've been here. Four, I think, four yeah. times. And the crowd's good today. They were insane. Just standing like, up for everything. Yeah. You know, when a, when a, a comedian, a stand-up that they don't necessarily know comes out and they give a standing ovation anyway, they're fired up. Mm-hmm. It's just and, like playing a gig somewhere. It's like. You can play your ass off, and some nights the crowd is good, yeah. and sometimes they're just amazing, and you catch that lightning in a bottle. And, right. You know. There's a very loyal audience to this show. Yeah. The show is a very loyal audience. Very loyal audience. and they, just very energetic. Yeah. Back in a minute with James and Mike, but first, a quick word from our sponsors. Right after I did this interview, I went down to Musicians Institute in Hollywood, California and got to hang out with Donnie and Stu down there. And I was blown away, not only at the sheer size of MI, but also 
how many interactive things they had going on and the how many rooms with drum sets and MIDI controllers and and computers and overhead displays and ways that you can record your practice and all sort of things. And they're just on the cutting edge of technology with everything that they're doing. And there's no reason that they've been located there in the heart of Hollywood, California since the 1970s because they are awesome. I'm telling you, this school is amazing. If you're thinking about going to school for music, definitely go to mi.edu and learn about their world-class faculty, their amazing facilities, and all of the great programs that they have there. Again, that's mi.edu, Musicians Institute, instrumental in life. My friends over at DW Drums have been the sponsor of this podcast since the very beginning, and they create and foster drumming initiatives all over the world. They've been doing it since the 1970s, and I'm forever grateful. You can learn more about DW, Gretsch, LP, and all of their great products by going to dwdrums.com. Now let's get back into this conversation with James and Mike. So what's the difference of approach of like playing this type of gig versus playing a gig in a you know in a stadium or in a club or whatever it may be because you guys are sort of like you're doing segments of songs here we're sort of like comedy is the star right and music supports the comedy music is what is the thread that holds the show together right and comedy is the star of this situation right and music is a very integral part of that but at the well, yeah well we'll play music for the comedy as well yeah but the, the thing that, that is most challenging, the, the thing that differentiates this from every other gig, basically, is we have to, you know, everything's on camera and everything's under the microscope. It's, right. it's you know, what we're doing has to be perfectly right every time. You know, Jimmy will count the song in, I got to give him a drum fill, and then we all have to land, start together, and then really pay attention because we're never just on stage. We have a concise period where the commercials are going to be running and we shoot everything in real time so you know we have to be aware we can't just close our eyes and get can't into it and just in, you know is, oh, is it shot in real time so the gaps yeah. between the show is actually how it's long pretty much the commercials that are sold what you get yeah. yeah yeah so we do with very plus, little like, editing you know smiling and all like you have to be well, just energetic it's the energy it's just the energy translates because the audience is looking for cues from what to do the audience when they come to a show like this, they don't, they don't really know what to they expect. They don't really know what to expect. Right. Or what to do. They've seen it on TV, but they yeah. don't know all how all the pieces come together. Mm-hmm. And it's just like an orchestra. As you can see, everything's coordinated between what the band does and what the lighting and the cameras do. The stage do. crew do. Stage yeah. Crew. It's like an orchestration. All things and parts are moving around. <laughs> Who's the guy that always comes up in the suit jacket? Uh, yeah. the, the warm-up comedian? No. Oh, that's Jeff Ross, our executive producer. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's, he's the executive producer. He's executive producer. Yeah, yeah, he's, yeah he's, he's been with Conan since the he's beginning. He's been there from day one. Because I always say, like, every commercial break, he walks up. Sometimes he doesn't even say anything. He just stands right here. And then they always, they're always they're constantly tweaking what right. they're doing as they're doing it. Right. So they're they're making the best show that we can do. Man. The next, what's coming up next? Or right. How did that go? How did that translate? How did that look? They're always constantly tweaking. It's never just like set it, plug and play. It's always like tweaking constantly. Right. They always do it. They always have done it. Yeah. And it's, then they go cool back after the show and dissect it. What you they've know. done. They have a huddle after the show. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. So they have a meeting in the morning to discuss what the show is going to be that day. Uh, the heads of the various departments go to that meeting and, you know, they discuss all of it and plan it out. And then we rehearse it. And then we shoot the mother jumper. And, uh, 
It's amazing how many moving parts there are. Like even when you when you were, I don't know, I think you went to makeup and I was in the back and I'm like hanging out with the guys who make the props and then mm-hmm. we go upstairs and there's like rows and rows and rows of wardrobe and mm-hmm. all kinds of stuff. And it's just like, and there's people everywhere that are, and like everybody's doing something. Always busy. And then the end product, man, just looks like this thing that we present right. as one uh, cohesive thing. But it's just really the culmination of all these departments and all these talents and all these focused people presenting this, the, the thing that you see on your flat screen. Right. You know? And then, you know, we have the the guest bands and you know, I think you've been here with mm-hmm. guest bands. Here you see the camera guys are just moving around constantly. It's like a choreographed ballet. All that stuff is planned. Billy's out in the booth directing the thing. There are people out there with him that are timing it and letting him know how much time we're coming back from commercial. And it's just... There's so much that goes into it, and uh, it's amazing to watch. It's it, it, we make it. I think we make it look fairly easy. Yeah, but once you're here, you realize that it's not. There, it's I mean, not. You know, yeah, there's, there's a lot. A lot of, a lot of mm-hmm. things. Look at above us. I know. Man, we'll take the, a picture of these lights. Yeah. Well, each each like, each part of the show, everybody's doing. They're focused on what they do. Right. So when you step back and look, and 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 and, and Ross has to be the guy who looks at the whole picture. <laughs> right. So you have to see all the elements coming together like the yeah. conductor. He's like, right. all the elements. You got the host, you got the band, you got the cameras, you got the right. That's good. That's right. Actors, he's the conductor. Got, so he's kind of like, oh, we just where all the parts kind of fit the way they're supposed to every day. Right. You know? So you would you mention, you know, that everything's under microscope and you're playing segments of songs. You got to know when to come in. You got to come, you got to know when to come out, all that stuff. Musically, is it... <laughs> I'm trying to figure out a way to phrase this, but how like how is it in terms of like feeding the creative muse? Well, uh, the one fortunate thing is that uh, Jimmy writes arrangements for a lot of things. We don't use um, what do you call it the, the, for licensing uh, a third party music. We use we use yeah we can't use we don't use third, third party, party music because it's just too expensive. Right. So we do play all this music that we all love. But we have to sort of dress it up on the way out from commercial, and then we play through the commercials, as you know. Right. So, we we uh, Jimmy writes out a, arranges a way for us to get to play something that, that hints at the song, and then once the cameras are out, then we just tear right into the song. Give the song audience something that they're familiar with. Yeah, ah. you know, just get them going, man. And then we bump back in. We go back to our generic kind of. Yeah. That kind of segment that kind like of feels it. like it because yeah. you know when it's caught on air and occasionally we'll get permission to actually play third party music like on tonight. the air right. occasionally like, like we did the song with O'Farrell tonight right. or we did something for so stupid. somebody else what was one of the was it Harrison was it, was it uh, Harrison yeah George Harrison we did all George Harrison music and, one night last year and Don Fowler occasionally we get permission with Steve Cropper sitting with us right. played a bunch That's of his fun. stuff you know, so we get permission occasionally coincidentally Scott Healy emailed me years ago mm-hmm. he was like hey man I'm a keyboard player from LA heard your song on the radio would love to you know play your your songs or one of your songs I think and you know can you send me the music and everything and he'd mentioned that he plays on Conan I said oh are you playing it on the show or are you just gonna you know play it at a gig or whatever and he was like no we can't play it on the show because of the licensing mm-hmm. for me I'm like 
you go ahead, man. Take oh, it. Okay. You know, like right, 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 I right, don't. Right. You don't have to give me a dime. Take. But he, you know, he was like, no, we can't play it on the. Yeah, yeah. We can't play all it on the, the show. The clearance houses they had people monitoring all the shows. Right. Yeah. The, 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 the control. And it's registered. So even if I said, hey, go ahead, ASCAP is going to go have it. We right. want the payment. Where's well, Nick's money? Yeah. But from a from a strictly player standpoint, something like this keeps you sharp. Right. Because you're always in the game. Mm-hmm. You're always in oh, it. Oh, man, it takes so much so focus. It takes a lot of concentration because you're always in every single bar you're playing. You never, like, you know, we, you, you, you have, we have solos, but we know at a certain point we're going to come back in and we're going to stop. Right. And we're going to stop. And some yeah. random... How, they, how do you guys know when to stop? I always well, watch... I'm watching you guys. Do. I'm like, all right, it's not... We just know. We get the signal. We get 30 seconds. Oh, yeah. Is that what the, That's the yeah. 30, yeah. Seconds, 30 seconds. 30 seconds till we're back in. And so, and then somewhere around ten seconds, you know, the come bump back in with the graphic, see the shot. And turn, you know, you'll hear the sound of the audience and the band. So the audience comes in at like two seconds, right? Yeah, and then you see a shot of home base, you're ringing the corner, and then yeah, we, or the shoot for the band, from Jimmy. you know, yeah. And then we kind of we we've gotten the timing down over the years, right? But uh, early on, man, because I, I always wondered, like, do they call? And then it's like four bars or two bars. No, it's, it's, it's just it's, 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 it's yeah. just kind of sense it. Yeah, do it enough times. We try sense. to make we we Jimmy does a great job of keeping it musical, so it makes sense instead of just you know because they're going to come back to Conan or Conan and Andy or Conan and the guest very quickly. So he sort of times it so that we're we figure out a good part of a phrase to just say, all right, and there's a spot. Right and there. very often, if you, you know, if you're watching the show, you'll see Conan kind of tapping along with us yeah. and he'll dip. he's listening mm-hmm. to the band. And so is Jeff. Jeff's a guitar player, yeah. uh, Jeff Ross, our EP. And, uh, it's, there's a lot of musicians on the show. So they hear when we rarely make mistakes and, uh, <laughs> But, you know, it's that, like I was saying, you got to be focused, man. You can't just close your eyes and look out for it and just like, get right. into it. There's no time for long intros right. and sections that are, you got to hit them with energy right out of the game. Well, because that's what I was thinking. It's like, it's, you know, you play a three hour gig, you sort of can go up and down. Exactly. This is like, it's at 10 the whole time and it has to be from right. jump, like no one. At, uh, yeah, at 10. Energy, energy, and then energy. during the commercials, sometimes we have to get it up to 11 or 12 and then be back to 10 when the camera comes back and it pans across the band and you know then it was just like we're still like I'm trying I usually try to play like a good fill that will take us into it cutting it off right and that's why for something like for this kind of a show uh, you know uh, anything that's kind of solid rock soul funk blues things that can ground it in something that people can feel with a backbeat yeah and it grabs the audience because Conan loves energy. Yeah. Right. He loves the energy to be. He likes to look at it as like, well, the warm-up guy comes out, and he gets the level from here to here. From people and, just filing and, in, and, and then the being, band comes yeah. out, and they get the level from here to here. So by the time I get out there, it's up to here. Yeah. And then we take that, and we just make the show out of that. Yeah. Keep yeah. going with the energy. It's all about the energy. But the one thing I was going to say about focus is, man, if you miss a cutoff and you're on that bandstand oh, there. Boy. It is hanging out there like it, like a stalactite. Yeah. So it, and that's it. It's, 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 it's you're there. so you're so I naked mean, it, get, so it doesn't wrong. get recut or anything. We it, no, we don't do any fixes. No. Maybe sometimes if Dave in the audio booth on it or if on, on a guy, or he might be able to 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 to, to duck, to duck it, something, maybe, yeah. or the applause up or do something. But you know. Or just make it all drums, of course. You just got it. You just got. You just got. You just can't make any mistakes. <laughs> yeah. Where's your head? <laughs> yeah. You're so freaking naked. If you need a sub. Don't call me. I'll be making mistakes. <laughs> 
that's one thing you notice when we occasionally, we used to do a lot more on the old show. Right. Don't very occasionally do it now, we would have guest artists sit in with the band. Yeah, for the whole a lot show. of times. Because that was like a Letterman thing and all yeah, that, too. That they would always have We used to do it back in New York quite a bit. We'd have really great musicians. We'd have everybody from like Michael Brecker was sat in with the band. Like I said, Tony Steve Williams. Cropper. Yeah, Tony Williams sat in. Earl Palmer sat in. And Shaughnessy. Great people, great people. But some, a lot of times. You never asked me to sit. I wasn't on the show. A lot of you musicians who are used to playing their own gig, where they're doing shows three right. hours or whatever, right. and you come back in and they're still wailing away. It's like, oh, no, 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 no. What, 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 what do you mean? Stop. Yeah. Conan's sitting there like, yeah, Conan's it's really like, great, but it's a time now. I think and then just, you know. There was, one guitar, like there, was, there was a guitar player whose name I won't mention, and he's known to be a very politically conservative oh, kind like of dude. From the Michigan, from the Michigan Detroit, kind yeah. of guy. He, he sat in with us once, and I swear to God, I think that's when Ross said, that's it, that's enough. No, no more of that? Because he liked No more of that. Not on, no, more of it. no more of that. Because <laughs> he, he kept going. Like one time too many. I mean, the first time at the commercial, okay, well, it's a sit-in, he's a guest, whatever. But the yeah. second and third times, like, Dude, when the band stops, right? You're supposed to stop. Yeah, you right. got to stop. Yeah. So you got a job to do here. He was like, "Hey, it's about me. I'm here." It's right. like, "No, no, no, that's no. not you're, you're a guest, but you're right. just over what you wore out. You're welcome." Most but, people, you know, most of people are really cool, man, and especially when we have guitar players on, slash, just sitting there marveling at it and just you know, that slash bit was good yeah. with him and Jack Black. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's just did a times. show with the two of them. Yeah, with uh, uh, we did a slash called us to do a benefit for the LA Zoo and he had Jack Black with him on the show and basic cable band Grace Potter yeah yeah Brian right. Fowler we yeah. did this We're show in the, the sweltering sun at the zoo great show really got a chance show. to play Welcome to the Jungle with Slash that yeah. was great, <laughs> that was great. You, can't, you can't beat that oh, that was great <laughs> with Jack Black singing Jack Black singing well who uh, there's something who played on every one of Jack Black's records there's someone I think Josh Freeze or oh, I don't know somebody somebody I might be wrong about Josh Freeze but there's somebody who always plays on every Jack Black record like there's e- guess. either like a bass player or a guitar player or something that always plays I don't know well I'm gonna have to look it up man it might be I feel like it's Josh Freeze I might be wrong I, I don't wanna miss misinform I, I'm gonna look it up though um there was, I was going to ask you, oh man, what was I thinking? You had mentioned playing, being, oh, so I, about guests when they come on and they're, and they're solo, right? If, they're, if it's just a solo artist, do they bring their own bands in or do you guys? Both. Yeah. It's yeah. self-contained. Although yesterday we had Robert Cray and they used our horn section. Yeah. And sometimes some or all of us or part of us of the band gets asked to do what he gets like doing. Just play here. You got to go over there and do it. Over there for we the do this, and then we go over there. We did Miss Etheridge. We did as a full band over oh, that's there. Right. She's great. She was really great. Yeah. Um, some of us, all of us, and sometimes all kinds of stuff too. We did like the soul stuff with Melissa, but then we had uh, Tim Minchin, and it was like sort of a, uh, a Broadway show kind of yeah, stuff. Exactly. You know, well, with kids I, singing and you know really orchestrated and arranged right. and stuff. Just reading it all down, and we, we get a little bit of everything, you know. And the reason why I ask because I feel like that was we. Had, I was saying before about like I feel like they did that a lot on Letterman and something where they would always have acts come in and they had well, a backing band. On the old Letterman show when they were doing late night, um, they the house band played with everybody and hardly any guest artists and came with the whole band. Yeah, 
That was yeah. kind of like how they were set up. Right. So that was the thing. You play with Paul Schaefer and the Morris Day's Dangerous Band, like that was it. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of bands, the, the leader or the front guy would come in and that would be it. You wouldn't be able to bring your own band on there. So when we started Late Night, they were into wanting more self-contained bands. Right. So they had the performance area and self-contained bands came in. That was where Green Day, first TV appearance was on Late Night. Oh really? Yes. I mean, yeah. that show broke a lot it's of broke show. Bands Late night broke a lot of bands. Gone, in the 90s. Like, I've gone on that huge careers. Uh, Cheryl Crow, first time she was on TV, we played with her. Right. Right. Back I don't know if, if Jack White was. I don't know if that was his first TV show, but he's been on like our show. He's every, been on Conan for a bunch. Jack White, when the White Stripes were out, they came on the show. They did a whole week on our show once. Oh really? Yeah. Yeah. He did our first show here. He did our first at show Warner here. At the Jack White or, or Jack White Stripes? Jack White, Jack White with us. With us, oh, yeah. Yeah. Because oh, Daru plays with them now. Daru Jones. Right. He's in New York now. Yeah. Um, the, if, you, if a band comes on here, they don't get paid to play, right? Yeah, sure. They get scale. Yeah, they get you know, union scale payment. Perf- performance scale. Performance scale. Yeah. Because yeah. I thought the, cause the big thing before, they were like, if you come on to late night, it's like you're guar- they, they would say you're guaranteed to sell 100,000 copies or something like that. It's like, well, nobody buys records. <laughs> with social media the way it is nowadays. You're that's guaranteed like, 2 billion views. 2 well, likes. Well, back, yeah. in the, back in the old days when you went on Carson, yeah. you went on Johnny Carson, if you were a comedian and Johnny Carson, you, yeah. you, were, you were in. Right. You were Jerry Seinfeld. Right. You were Ellen DeGeneres. You were Drew Carey. You were career shot through the roof like a rocket. Yeah, I like Johnny. You said DeGeneres. Whatever. Johnny, no, I like that more than Johnny Carey. You were a star. If yeah. you went on the Tonight Show and you, and you were breaking out, you know, you, your record was breaking. That would guarantee you in the yeah. days before social media, before YouTube, before the internet. The internet, you know, made it yeah. so that people have seen their favorite band before they come on. But it's like, oh, they're on Conan now. Or they want so the idea is I think they still like to find bands that have the potential of breaking through. Yeah. yeah. So as opposed to always having established guest artists, which we do have the established people come on, mm-hmm. uh, they emphasize the ones who are, are going or moving up. That are on their way. Young bands yeah. that are that are just, sure. c- could break through. Yeah, you just ha- I think uh, the revivalists were on here a couple uh, mm-hmm. about a month yeah. or two. And the same way with stand up comedians. Yeah, great, it's man. always giving stand up comedians a chance here on the show. Well, I thought about that about the guy who was on tonight, um, Tom Papa. Tom yeah. Papa, who's, I mean, he's been around. He's, he's an established guy. guy. He's an established guy. He's but still like, fresh, though, man. I love it. Yeah, great. But I was team. thinking, like, all right, Judd was here, right? He could be sitting here and being like, "I want that guy in my next movie," right? You know, and it could totally change that guy's career. You yeah. know? Well, like, Judd was saying tonight that he was nervous about being around really good comedians because Judd is going back out to do stand-up himself. Right. Right. That he started in stand-up and then, you know, the directing movie career uh, became his thing, but he's going back to stand-up kind of soon. And so you're saying, well, he gets nervous. He doesn't really want to hear like Louis C.K. or Bill Burr or somebody like that. We had to sit here and watch Tom Papa do his thing. <laughs> and, and Tom Papa, you know, unassuming but brilliant. Yeah. Really great. He oh, man, it's so funny. Hilarious. Telling people about themselves in a way that they could stomach. No pun intended. <laughs> he didn't stop when he sat down either. He no, said, no, I don't want to do No, I don't want to do that. Kept going. Don't go on vacations. Kept going. Does it sound different up on stage than it does like at a club? Or? Oh well, well, Roy's over here. <laughs> I, I think the crowd, the crowd definitely. It sounds different up there. Yeah, way different than it sounds on TV. Yeah, yeah. we're trying to, to trying to have it be like a live situation. 
Mm. So we're trying to play it like we're trying to have a dynamic. Because I remember when we started at late night, they wouldn't. They built the set, and it was not allowed to have a bass amp up there because of the space. You just went direct. I I went direct and had a wedge, which was like and a boomer under your fight to get a a, an amp, and eventually we had a boomer under your and I had to have the rock and sock chair and all that, but I had to fight to get a real amp. Now I've got a real amp, like like on a gig, and I think the idea is to try to have it like a gig, but like this is a TV show, and like doing a recording session. And a live gig all rolled into one. Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly what it's like doing a session, you know, where every take has to be a first freaking take. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but still be energetic and entertaining. And be in the moment. Everyone. Be in the moment. You know. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. Because the song that we did for the Will Ferrell segment, I mean, that took a little bit of work to get that up to where it was. And there was a lot of different th- things to change from the chart. Right. You make your notes. And, you and how long do you have to learn that? Well, today, we yeah. came in today and did it less than an hour. Did a run through back in the band room and came out here and did a few run throughs and rehearsal and then showtime. Nice. Yeah. And you don't really get a chance to do it again once you do it for the show. And that's it. There's no, we're going to take that again, ladies and gentlemen. No, that's yeah. one yeah, shot. Yeah, it's done. That's right. It. Yeah. Right. But that's, you know, why you're here. That's why you got the gig because yeah. you can do that. You know, it's, it's not easy, but. You're qualified certain, to do it. It takes a certain skill set, right? A certain level of skill to execute this kind of thing. How do you think you're turning into that? Liam Neeson? <laughs> As a very specific shit of skill. <laughs> if you do what I say, no harm will come to you. <laughs> That's my daughter. Hey, how do you become one? <laughs> so how do you? Yeah, but how do you hone that skill set? Baptism by fire. Uh, just by keeping your eyes open and being, you know, really paying attention and just do, you find your way toward meeting what needs to be done. And then you just tweak from there. Have, have an experience freelance with a lot of different artists. In New York, especially, you know, if you're playing you're just sort of a house band for a club and people are coming through, man, you got to get it right the first time and just really embody their music. And uh, just, you know, follow their cues. Right. So that's that thing of having your just being perceptive and plus and having focused. A, a little bit of a knowledge and a respect of the television tradition of variety shows and late night shows, going mm-hmm. back to Johnny Carson. Having a respect and a knowledge of what it took to make those kind of shows happen. Yeah. And Did you go back and like study those and watch? I watched them when I was a little kid. Yeah. Just as a fan. Yeah. You know? and I, I mean, j- once you you were like knew that you were going to be playing on late night, were you? Oh yeah. Well, then I I started watching Letterman on his new show with because I watched the old show like religiously yeah. whenever I could when I wasn't on the gig and I was like, yeah, I could do that. <laughs> I could but do it's that. also it's different watching it, uh, you know, on TV or YouTube. It's different from actually being. You know, in front of the cameras as opposed to in front of the TV. Right. Or in this age, the monitor, kids. The high res, the retina display. Um, it's different when you, you're actually there doing it. And when I first started doing it back in New York, I wrote, I numbered, I wrote everything down so to leave myself as little open to mistakes as I could. And at one time, Conan came by, he just saw my rundown we have a rundown of the whole show mm-hmm. and the timing and then we fill in the the tunes that we're playing and the count off to get into them and you know any other pertinent information conan walks by and in, in, in our rehearsal room and he looks at my sheet he says wow you got more stuff written down than i do and i'm, I'm the head of the sh- i'm doing the show it's my show <laughs> he just has a blue card with a couple of little road mappy things on it and i was just like i do not want to fuck up so right. i'm just gonna put 
everything down that I can possibly, and I had it in different color markers just so I could not read something twice, you know. But you don't have to interview Al Roker for the 10th time. How do you know that? <laughs> oh, you guys got something going on. Al oh, Roker likes to talk, man. He gets a little <laughs> gabby. The gab master, we used to call him back in New York. Yeah. So what do you what do you write down now? Um, just the count-offs and what tunes we're playing. And sometimes, you know, just a fill that I want to play. Sometimes I'll write it out just to remind myself from the afternoon to the when we actually play it. But how, how often... How often are you guys changing tunes? Do you change? Do you play different oh, songs yeah, every yeah, single day? Hundreds of thick books. So yeah. Yeah. yeah, just just pulls th- things every day. That he could be in the car coming back from the airport and uh, hear something on a thing, and just you know come in that morning at ten o'clock or nine o'clock and just say, let's play this today. And we'll scratch out a chart and, and the, we get it, in and play the show. We'll, we'll copy it and then he oh. uh, just says, "All right, let's run through." Two, three, and, and then we play it, read it down. He'll make the this notes, is, right, whatever. Let's let's do it tonight. So he he pretty much as the music director. He is the music director I mean, without a doubt. No, I mean him being the music director, he pretty much has creative oh, yeah. Yeah, freedom I to mean, do pretty much whatever he wants. Absolutely. I mean, within reason, obviously. Within reason. He knows what Conan likes in terms of song selection. Right. He knows the kind of energy he likes in terms of the kind of songs that we want to do. What was here before Conan? Do you guys know? Here? Yeah. They just shot features here. They yeah. shot movies here. They shot part of the Hangover the, here. They shot part of a lot of movie production. Oh, the Perfect Storm was. I don't know if there was a TV show that was here. They they shot mm-hmm. a lot it, of it films. Says, says, Rosie O'Donnell shot here when she came to LA and did a period of shows. She had her show in New York in the morning, her daytime show. And my sister was the bass player on that gig. And they came out to do whatever a week in LA or something. And outside on the stage, it says the Rosie O'Donnell show. Whatever year they were here. And then our show. So uh, one time, Mike, had, uh, I guess he took a better gig or something. I don't know. And uh, he was away for a week. I took a couple days off. I had, yeah. I, had another, I had another gig. He had a wisdom tooth or something. He had a thing. And yeah. I did something with Joe Bonamassa. We had a, we had a little project we were working on together. Nice. So I did something Very nice. Him. Yeah, yeah, that's so, a great band, by the way. So Tracy came in. And, and hey, my sister came in and did the show here. And then, yeah. She's like, I've been here before. No. Well, yeah. yeah. But it didn't look anything like this. Sure. Yeah, I guess Rose, Rosie and Conan, well, Conan's, yeah. It's so interesting just walking around the lot. And like it's just so great. How many they shot the here. Goonies and Blazing Saddles on this stage. That's wow, awesome. Great, great yeah. movies have been shot right in the soundstage. And yeah, we've had Mel stuff. Brooks, the, you know, the creator of Blazing Saddles, uh, on the show Bunch several times. Yeah. And mm-hmm. he, just the stuff that he talks about, man. Even just about placing saddles, about things that happen, you know, behind the scenes stuff that you don't get on the extras on the Blu ray. Oh, yeah, he talked about yeah. the final scene when they're running out of the, the uh, when they're going on, when they're on a lot, and they're going mm-hmm. right towards the entrance of gate three, and there was a guy sitting in a bench. The guy wasn't supposed to be there. He, was, he wasn't an extra. He was just a guy waiting for the bus. Right. They and shot the scene the anyway. Where everybody's running out from Warner Brothers yeah. in the may- madness and mayhem. Yeah. And the guy's just, I think he was in like a powdered blue leisure suit. Yeah. And he was in a blue suit. And he's just, he's looking around like, what's happening? Yeah, he, wasn't, he wasn't planning to be He wasn't cast at all. He's yeah, just, and he's, he's just happy to be in the shot. into the movie. That's awesome. Yeah. But Mel Brooks told that story when he was sitting right here. Right. <laughs> right here where I'm sitting. <laughs> yeah, not where I'm sitting. Because I'm, uh, I'm in the Conan the Conan seat. You're starting to look like him a little bit. Your hair's starting to curl up a little bit. Hopefully I get taller. <laughs> Um, yeah, just, I mean, it's just amazing walking around and you're like, oh, this was shot here and this was shot here. Oh, so many movies. Well, it's, it's, a, it's an actual working production lot. That's right. been, and we were at Universal. It was like a theme park in a production lot. So it was a thing. 
It was like, like there was a lot of new stuff too. Like our building at Universal was built for our show. Yeah, the stage one was built for the stage and yeah, and yeah. offices above it and everything. Yeah, and that yeah. cool dining area for the riders on the roof. Yeah, yeah. But this this is a working lot. You yeah, all since of the early twenties. Yeah, know, they've been amazing. they've been doing this thing and you know, the stage next door. They had to raise it to do what was it, Buzzly, kind of a Buzzy? No, it's a music a, a, a water a, a, movie. One of those nautical pirate movies where you yeah. need to fill a tank. Uh, this stage has a tank underneath it too. Yeah. Oh really? Yeah, they do like they, they did, did Perfect Storm here. They did Perfect Storm. Yeah, yeah. Mm. That George Clooney vehicle. They yeah. did Poseidon here, I think, either here or next door. The Poseidon. Yeah. They remake it a Poseidon Adventure. They did wow. that. Oh yeah. Because yeah. they have a big tank underneath the stage. There's definitely some history here, which yeah. I. So one thing that's going down in history in Stage 15 is this interview. So Absolutely. I appreciate yeah. you guys uh, doing this, and uh, let's go get some food and some wine. Let's go. Uh, that sounds good. Yeah. Let's sound go good. Top a bit. Good deal. Excellent. Perfect. There you have it. James the Worm Wormworth and Mike Merritt from Conan O'Brien Band, the basic cable band. And for the links to everything that we talk about, head over to drummersresource.com forward slash session 280. There's also pics of us there sitting at the Conan desk doing the interview, uh, shots of the studio, all that sort of fun stuff if you want to check that out. Again, it's at drummersresource.com forward slash session 280. And again, I hope you dug this. And I and like I said in the beginning, this was a conversation, so it wasn't meant to be this really deep, in-depth interview, just more of us just sitting around uh, shooting the breeze. So hope you dug it. And again, if you like the podcast, please do me a favor, leave a rating, leave a review. You can do that right there on iTunes, and it'll take you about two minutes. And until the next podcast, keep drumming. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll be talking to you soon. Peace.